folks. Uh, it's Evan. Welcome to the Two Minute Hate Podcast. Very excited this week. We have on uh, Astral from the Astral Flight Simulator Podcast. He's at uh, AFS Cast on Twitter, astralflight.substack.com, and you can look up the Astral Flight Simulator Podcast uh, on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. He's had some great guests on. Um, he's had Nightmare Vision, one of my uh, favorite Twitter accounts, and uh, He's had a bunch of un- interesting people on, and, and he does a bunch of different kinds of episodes, but my favorite episodes that he does are sort of like these deep uh, psychological, thematic, and cultural analyses of particularly horror movies, but also other uh, pop art. Um, so just a couple notes before we get into the episode. For the first, like, ten seconds of the recording, uh, his end wasn't coming through, so you'll hear me asking him some questions, just welcoming him to the show, and I think it's about five to ten seconds that you can't hear him, and then he comes in, so don't worry, that problem gets resolved quickly. Um, and then uh, Astro wanted me to pass along that there's a couple moments where he uh, attributes certain thoughts or developments in thinking to Adorno, and he let me know that uh, he was actually thinking of Lukacs, so um, when you hear Adorno, he's actually referencing Lukacs, and I don't know if I'm saying Lukacs correctly, but... That's my uh, best guesstimate or whatever. So, uh, yeah, enjoy the episode and check out the Astral Flight Simulator podcast. All right, I'm very excited to welcome to the Two Minute Hate podcast Astral from the Astral Flight Simulator podcast. Astral, thanks for coming on. And you're on Twitter at AFSCast and you're astralflight.substack.com. Okay, great. Yeah, and we'll put uh, we'll put those links in the, the episode notes. I'm very uh, pleased and privileged to have you on. I think uh, I really love your podcast. You do a bunch of different things on your podcast. You sort of have different styles of episodes. But I think my favorite thing that you do is you do these sort of like deep reads of, I don't know if I'd call it pop art or mainstream art, but things like horror movies, sci-fi movies, fantasy stuff. You, you have guests on and you do sort of like a deep breakdown of, uh, I don't know if, if you think about in advance, like sort of what uh, philosophical or psychological frame you're going to do with a given movie or it just occurs to you when you watch. But, you know, you guys talk about Freud and Jung or, or Nietzsche or sort of like Greek myths uh, archetypes that are coming through in the film. So I'm I'm curious if that's something you've always done in response to movies and film, like sort of associated it with more uh, archetypal and, and canonical texts or, or philosophy stuff, or if that's something you sort of had a sense of when you were younger, but then when you're older and sort of knew more things, you started to, to you know, cross compare. Yeah, man, that's a, that's a really cool question. Um, I do have different approaches to my content, that, and um, sometimes I feel like it's kind of like a scattered mess because it it's so all over the place and I haven't decided if like having a specific theme is the way to go or if I should just keep doing what I'm doing but I have thought about sort of pivoting more towards the stuff you're talking about and maybe even doing that exclusively I don't know we'll have to see how it goes excuse me but um so the feedback is good the feedback is appreciated and I have a lot more coming up. Now, it sounds to me like your question is like, how did I start reading 
film and and books uh through this lens like how did i yeah yeah come exactly. to it yeah yeah definitely did not come um for a long long time i just you know was was uh, your average consumer of media i uh i just read books voraciously and sometimes i would read nonfiction just because i was interested in the subject and you know, just like your 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 average American, I watched a lot of TV. I read a lot of comic books, um, and it was all just stuff I was taking in. But w- once I got older, like say my late twenties, early thirties, I like really, really, really started getting interested in um, literary analysis. Let's call it. Um, in other words, I would started reading seriously in my free time to to learn things um as as kind of ridiculous as that sounds as opposed to just using it as a pastime or or escapism or whatever you know what i mean yeah and i think i've pinpointed the moment where i started looking at literature and pop culture differently um because right like I feel like this sounds ridiculous to say, so I want you to to back me up on this if I'm onto something here, but I went through much of my life with the impression that most people have this sort of um, inherent understanding that there's pop throwaway candy and that there's uh, like high art and culture. So like, you know, Shakespeare or Dostoevsky um, or Greek tragedy is something for, you know, like academics to talk about and to talk about in some, <clears throat> excuse me, high-minded way. Whereas the average person is just going to watch um, whatever, whatever it might be, your, your, your favorite science fiction movie. And I mean, do I have that about right? You know, like the masses kind of just. Yeah, absolutely. Consume. I mean, it's, it's a, it definitely was a distinction that I could see even in my home because my mom, who's like a very literary person, could look at a book and sort of like nod approvingly like, oh, that has substance. Or if it was just like Hardy Boys or some shit, she might frown and be like, why are you like you're not learning when you read that? And maybe initially I didn't know what she was like uh, being judgmental of. But now I think it's the distinction you're talking about. Like yeah. she, wanted, she wanted me to do these enriching texts. Yeah, and I think I think as well, like um, universities. I mean, I think traditionally that's where it comes from: is that the universities would only dean to study or or review or discuss certain things, and other things weren't you know worthy or good enough. And you know, it's kind of been a trope for a while that that uh, high art doesn't exist anymore, and the, the distinction between low culture and high culture kind of went away. Like I think. I think after World War II and in like the 1950s, because the ascendancy of American pop culture was just like so dominant of people's attention that people started to get the impression that like it overtook high art and it sort of like it did a couple things. It it either obfuscated it and like negated it or it was given importance, equal importance, if not primacy with high art. <clears throat> and uh sorry i got a little bit of a cough i hope i hope your guests don't mind yeah um, no worries. and it's so at some point it started to 
actually creep into the university and it started to be critiqued uh, by the intellectuals. So you started to have um, intellectuals like I don't know like the full genealogy because I don't study the academic history of literary criticism. But I can give you like my back of the napkin assessment of the situation where you had people like uh, and these these were these were deeply, deeply Marxist people, um, which is actually significant. Maybe we'll talk about why later, but um, not really relevant to your question. You get people like the Frankfurt School. I think it was Adorno. It's like the the main guy who kind of shat all over pop culture and even jazz. Um, he said it was all just like uh, candy for the masses. It's just distractions. And I remember like one of the things, I think it was him or could have been Walter Benjamin. It was one of those early Frankfurt School guys. Um, like mo- dime dime store movies were like really big at the time, and they observed that like oh my god like everybody's paying attention to this, and nobody's going to like uh you know cultivate their mind through high literature and stuff, and then as the years go by you started seeing like and those were like the most prominent like critics uh, at the time like it's, it's, well certainly the most prominent leftist critics, um. But uh, but they were still prominent, like in general. Um, and then you had like the next generation come along. You had someone like Marshall McLuhan, whose entire focus was on pop culture and the effect of pop culture. Um, you know, and he was like heavily steeped in in Shakespeare and and Greek drama. But um, he talked about television, and people say that he wasn't really taken seriously as a philosopher or a critic, and he kind of, like, was in his own little niche because he talked about pop culture, you know? Yeah. And then the next guy, for me, I mean, these are all the guys I've read, so that's, you know, part of why my accounting of the 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 the, the, the genesis and the genealogy of this is, like, biased because these are the guys that I read. Um, you got, like, Frederick Jameson, who I've heard, I can't back this up, but I've heard he was, like, one of the most cited, one of the most important, and one of the most uh, widely read academics in the entire country. And his big book was uh, uh, Postmodernism and the Culture of Late Capitalism, I think it's called. Um, and the whole thing is a critique of pop culture. The whole thing is a critique of David Lynch and, and, and 20th century French novels and television shows and things like that. And then finally, you have David Foster Wallace, who, you know, wasn't really famous as a critic, although he was taken seriously as a critic and published as a critic. He was more well-known for his fiction. But one of the things that people who look at his work and sort of try to analyze his work talk about uh, is, is his, um, is his um, syllabus for his English classes when he became a professor. It was all like John Grissom and Michael Crichton. And Stephen King and people were like, well, what the fuck is this? Um, and and people, look, you know, look down on him. But other people said that he was actively trying to take pop culture into academia and like study it like it was, you know, any other form of high culture. So I've seen the discussion about high versus low culture and high versus low art morph over time where it used to be that. And, and this goes back to my initial comments, which was that it, it used to be that, um, and this is like the Adorno thing, 
uh, low culture is overtaking high culture. Nobody's going to give a shit about high culture anymore, and it's not. It's going to die. Um, it's sort of morphed into well, actually, there is no such thing as either, and everything that exists is like worthy of this like intellectual um, mining for meaning. Okay, so I didn't really answer your question directly, but the answer is in there. In that, uh, the first moment that I can remember like something tripping in my head and it's so silly, but it's also so perfect for our, um, for our discussion. It's like the perfect anecdote, but it's like something a plebe would say. I feel like something, cause I'm totally self taught. I mean, this is just me and my friends talking, you know what I mean? Like we're yeah. not, none of us are serious guys. Um, there's this article. Did you listen to the Texas chainsaw massacre episode? I did. Yeah. Okay. So that was like, uh, my that was like my baby that episode uh, because yeah it was a great episode I'm glad you feel that way uh, that's one of my favorite movies of all time but I used to work nights um, at this job where I didn't have anything to do and I was reading I just read for you know eight hours every night and I remember stumbling across this really long article in Texas Monthly and it's like everything you ever wanted to know about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's how the movie came into being. It's a, it's a literary analysis of the film. It's interviews. It's, it's, it's everything. And I link it on, on my blog. And I want everybody who's a fan of that movie to read it. In that movie, or in that essay, someone says to Toby Hooper, the director, that, uh, oh, I see, this story is a retelling of the Hansel and Gretel story. And... Toby Hooper's response was something to the effect of like, okay, finally somebody gets what I was trying to do. And, uh, that like, that like was a paradigm shifting moment for me. Um, it, it, it totally changed the way I uh, uh, related to the things I was reading. And I now, ever since then, while I still read for, uh, pleasure, I'm always trying to fit things into like the grand narrative I have about what art that is produced in our era can tell us about the psyche of the people who live in our era. And it's hilarious to me that that happened because of like a low budget horror movie, but that's really the truth of it. And, um, you know, I can't remember who else I was reading. I had I had already read like Young and Joseph Campbell at that point in my life, but I thought that what they were talking about didn't apply to today's pop culture. You know what I mean? I thought yeah. like what they were saying only applies to mythology from the past and it only applies to the the realm of psychology. I didn't realize there was any overlap until I like read that and and I thought about it and it is the Hansel and Gretel story if you think about it, right? These kids, they're, they're not uh, orphans, but they're like away from their parents, um, <clears throat> probably for the first time ever. And they go way out into the country and they find this haunted house and there's cannibals there who try to eat them. And um, I was going to say they outsmart them. They don't exactly outsmart them like they do in Hansel and Gretel. But nevertheless, you know, the girl escapes and gets away. And it's it's morphologically the same story. So ever since then, and this was 10, 12, 15 years ago, I've been sort of on this mission and, um, I don't, I don't prefer the Marxist critics. Um, but I, I, I do have to say that unfortunately, 
um, when you start to look into this stuff, like these are the guys that people talk about and these are the guys that people read. And um, I, I never liked their politics. And I think some of them, uh, I'm just kind of saying this as a disclaimer so your listeners understand that like I don't buy into the Marxist bullshit that's in all these people that I'm re- referencing. When you read them, I think they're taking this really good critique of art and like hammering it into a, a square peg, that this round critique of art. They're trying to hammer it into a square Marxist socialist peg, which just if you read with any sort of intelligence, you can tell in the text where they're doing that and they're they're sort of you have to reject some of the things they say but nevertheless um that is i you know i have to admit that is where i got my approach to reading literature and 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 using say concepts and tools that i get from reading psychology and philosophy and applying it to pop culture because that's what those guys did and um you know, Marshall McLuhan is probably, and he's not a Marxist, which is good, probably the most important one of all those guys. Um, but he's very, he doesn't hand anything to you on a silver platter. Uh, he makes you work. So if you start with McLuhan, you really have to do a lot of supplemental reading to sort of uh, parse out w- what he's saying. But um, it sounds like you wanted to jump in there. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, I think that. Um... What you're saying makes sense. I think I know uh, a lot less about the the Frankfurt School, but my impression is that, you know, sort of orthodox Marxist uh, cultural criticism would be just about sort of like class dynamics in art. And then like the innovations of the Frankfurt School were, you know, taking on like Freudian analysis um, and like different frames of a similar type of analysis, but not just with the sole focus on economics, bringing in like different aspects of social relations, psychology. So I think you're, you're basically right that even if we don't, um, even if we don't relate to these people's politics in the broadest sense, they sort of innovated in a cultural criticism vernacular uh, that is like the genesis of that, at least in our culture. Um, yeah, and, and, and the other thing about it is it's popular. I mean, lots of people know who these people are and lots of people have read them. When I got interested in what I'm referring to as literary criticism, um, those are the names that came up when I looked into it. You know what I mean? Like that's that's who yeah. was being talked about. And then, um, you know, there's other people who aren't Marxist, but uh, these guys are – in the in the milieu they're in the mix they're uh, other people have read them you know you can you can get a conversation going about them and it's it's fun too um i find myself in a unique position that i actually really appreciate that i can actually talk to leftists about this stuff and like have an animated conversation and like you know take them the task on the stuff that i think is bullshit and the stuff that it's like you know dude this guy is clearly superimposing his preconceived political notions onto this text. You know what I mean? I mean, my, my, my opinion is that uh, Marxist and feminist analyses of culture and, and art in particular is total uh, sophistry. I mean, it's total, totally trying to, I mean, we all see it now, right? Like 
they're trying to rewrite history to fit their bullshit, unsustainable narrative. And, and just like when you see an article, did you see these articles? Like uh, they find a grave in Peru in the mountains and they're like, oh, look, there's a 14-year-old girl with a sword. She must have been a warrior and therefore, you know, they were non-binary and this this woman was possibly trans and stuff like that. And it's like so transparent what they're doing. They do the same thing with, with art and literature. Um, they reduce, you know, I, well, off the top of my head, I guess, uh, well, I guess the best example actually is, uh, what is it? Uh, I almost said tender is the night. Um, the great Gatsby, like there's all sorts of like class analyses and feminist analyses of that book. And it's just, drivel it like doesn't it misses the forest for the trees type of thing you know yeah i think you know i could be a little bit wrong with my genealogy here but i think one thing i appreciate about the older uh like cultural critics of the left is i think that they would actually admit maybe not in their most like popular works but they would sort of cop to the idea that their idea of the role of critic was to instruct the masses with how to interpret art. So, you know, they they sort of implicated with their broader worldview that, like, they weren't so much claiming that um, the artist actually intended to make a thing about class conflict, but it's their role to sort of project that onto the art. Whereas I think that would distinguish them from their, uh, like, descendants on the left today who are like very sincere and very needy in terms yeah. of being like, no, no, this really is like feminist at its core or whatever. Yeah, man, that's very, very well said. Um, so, you know, and it's like, I feel like the way I'm talking about it makes it sound, you know, when, whenever you like remove yourself from something and you examine it from all sides, it, it sort of like takes the piss out of it. But like me and my friends have a ton of fun and like the stuff we talk about is just, we're just animated about the things we're interested in. And um, so what ends up happening at a certain point is, you know, you read a book and they're talking about some, you know, ancient or primitive tribe or some mythology from the past. And you start to see the, uh, to reuse a word I used earlier, like the morphological similarities between the stories now and the stories back then. And you realize that like, myth is still happening now and it still has the same like when joseph campbell and others uh say that myth uh myth young is another one uh, that myth has like a certain significance and like has like a symbolic meaning well it's not just for the people back then and and it's not just that those myths from back then are the only place we can go get the symbolic meaning from we can get the same symbolic meaning from some of our myths today. And I, I actually think movies are our mythology of today because uh, literature is much more of a high-minded activity. I mean, reading a book of any kind is a more intellectual task than watching a movie of any kind. I mean, there's just no comparison. There are two, you know, devices that deliver narrative, but film unless you're like a really talented or really creative director film basically just spoon feeds it to you whereas literature um even if it's 
what people consider to be drivel, uh, you still have to sit down and you still have to have some level of reading comprehension. I mean, a little child can watch any movie, um, but you have to have some level of reading comprehension to read, you know, any book that's not a children's book. Yeah. You have to be very intellectually engaged to get through even a pop book. Whereas like you can sort of absorb a movie, even if you're absorb is a great word. Absorb is a great word. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that makes my point better for me than I was going to make it for myself, which is that my point about saying this is that, Therefore, film is the mythology of today. And the reason why uh, absorb is the perfect word is because I was going to liken film to myths from the past in that uh, myths from the past were told. They were verbal. They, they, were, they were spoken to people around the campfire. Um, and you can sit back and absorb it in the same way. And it's translatable to the masses. You don't have to be literate to read it. Uh, so it, it sort of simplifies the message um, and makes it more uh, deliverable, I guess. It's m- m- more palatable, not palatable, what's the word, but just comprehensible to more people. You know what I mean? And the, and the myths, and one of the, another people, a person who's really important to me is Camille Paglia. <clears throat> I feel like all these people, like once you kind of start reading, and you know, I don't know what your background is, like if either in school or just on your own reading uh, this kind of stuff. Like once you start reading one person and you start going online and reading reviews or reading comments that, that other readers have made, it starts to kind of lead to other people. And there's like, you know, all these people that I'm naming, they're all kind of in the same mix together. You know what I mean? Like young Nietzsche, McLuhan, Pallia, Freud, they all read each other, you know, Jameson, they all read each other and they are building on each other. So um, it kind of makes sense that you would, if you were interested in Freud and Jung, you would, you would eventually get on Camille Paglia. And I have to give Jordan Peterson credit. I mean, he made so much of this popular. Um, He he came a long way, 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 way later because I'm older. By the time he came along, I was kind of already up in the mix but it was like so nice to see that all of a sudden, like Young and Dostoevsky and whoever else, Solzhenitsyn, who I've never, I've never read Solzhenitsyn, but um, all these guys, he and Palia is another one. In fact, I found Palia through Jordan Peterson because he was talking about. I think he interviewed her or something. Yeah, anyway, they had a they had a clip together. But I I think your podcast is like Sexual Personae. Because, oh, it's like, massively influential to me, bro. But go on. Sorry. Yeah, just because like she – I think what I found both challenging and fascinating about that book is like she does not limit her references to a historical period or a school of philosophy. She's sort of just like I'm going to tar- talk about archetypes and whatever examples from history I think are relevant, I'm going to pull in. Uh, and that's sort of like what you guys do when you're you're analyzing these movies, like you're you're comparing different mythological schools, different psychological schools, philosophical schools. So it's it's similarly like uh, eclectic. Yeah. Well, you know, I never thought about this, but you're right. Palia, if you read. Well, I guess I'll just use the example that James and I, I hate I, I hate 
I'll, you know, look, just disclaimer, man. I just I name drop. I, I don't. I hope it doesn't come across as pretentious. But um, you know, I do. No, it. no, I run a pretentious podcast. So oh, feel, okay. Feel free. <laughs> if you haven't read, if your listeners haven't read these people, then they're not as smart as me. Damn it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I j- I just said on my last podcast that I'm half retarded, so please don't get the wrong idea. <laughs> No, but I do it. I do it because I want. I don't want to ever. And this is this is actually to my point about Palia and to your point about Palia. I don't ever want to come across like uh, I'm just pulling the stuff out of my ass or that like I'm like the guy who came up with all this. Like, no, I get all this from the things I read. You know what I'm saying? No, yeah, and I think it's. I mean, I'm sure this will only provide uh, limited comfort, but from the outside, I think your interest reads as uh very sincere so i okay, i wouldn't good. worry no. about uh good. that way good and you know anybody who's interested go read the people i name but i may i make a point here um about palia well you made the point but i'm just expanding on it which is that she um hang on i gotta i gotta cough here she is very different than a lot of other writers now um, and she she has this confidence in her ideas that is not often found today in that um, the academy has really through journalism and through you know print media the the academy has really been a force a cultural force uh, in our in our culture since at least the 50s and 60s and their focus on peer review and citations and and couching everything into references and building your argument by you know the the more references you have the stronger your argument is and uh, so Jameson is someone who's constantly name dropping even like uh, the Losing Guitari uh, I really really like those guys I know they get a lot of flack in our spheres, but they're really fucking good. And I highly recommend reading them, but they're like constantly name dropping it. And they have this really wild, really frenetic philosophy. And their arguments are like massively tangential and circular to the point where like you get really disoriented. Uh, Nevertheless, even they fall into this, like feeling like they have to just like, cite everything and have the footnotes and like make references to all the stuff all over the place. And it's like, you know, they, these people like me, I don't know, maybe they're trying to make it look like they're writing some sort of engineering journal where it's like, uh, you know, we're not smart enough to do uh, high level math, but we can sure as hell make our papers look like the high level math with like marking it up like this. Like, I don't really know, but pe- people don't like that shit. Um, and it's like, <laughs> and it's like, all over anything intellectual that you read, but not, it's not around, it's not all over Palia. Like she like, she just tells it like it is like one of the reviews I read, it might've even been the review on the back of the book is like each sentence is like this declarative, like final statement. Like every sentence is, she's just like making a declaration. Like this is how it is. This is what people think. This is what this means. And she doesn't reference it and she doesn't tell you where she got it from. And you yeah, own, she doesn't qualify it, which, which I admire. It's very masculine energy. Actually. A lot of people say that, uh, she doesn't write like a woman and there's some truth to that. And I think that's a great, a great example of that. You know, like, um, I don't remember if she mentions the book, uh, birth of tragedy at all. She might mention it somewhere in there. 
but uh, someone told me that she's like rewriting and expanding on the birth of tragedy. And once I heard that, I like saw in a whole new light, like, okay, she's, she's heavily steeped in the thought of like all these other guys, but she doesn't feel the need to like constantly like, you know, show off and make recourse to their arguments. And I think the experience of reading the book is like totally different that way. And um, she's the one I mentioned her in, in the first place because she's the one who made me realize, and I think it's in the book. It might be in the book, glittering images. I get the later works confused. Um, I have to admit, I've never read a, a Camille Paglia book straight through. Did you, I mean, all the way through, did you finish uh, sexual persona? Yeah, but it's like it's like a whirlwind, you know. I don't know how much recall I could have. Like it's a, but I, I agree with everything you're saying. They're like incredibly. It's incredibly ambitious. Like once I think my brother told me some phrase about academia that academia is in the process of learning more and more about less and less. Yeah, which I I think is in reference to how like scholarship increasingly, you know, someone will write a dissertation. Uh, that's like, I'm going to look at, you know, Ottoman door architecture yes. between these five years or whatever. Yes. And it's like, who gives a shit? Yeah. And I think what sort of like blew the doors off for me with Pally is she's like, I'm going to introduce some concepts and then I'm going to take you through all of human history with yeah. them and tell you what it all means. And so it's like, she's actually trying to do, it, it's almost like she's saying like, you know, if human civilization ended or there was a new civilization or aliens and they needed to know everything about this archetype, like it would be in my book. Awesome. And no, no other academic literature is like that. Yeah, well, um, what you're talking about is the specialization versus generalization. Right. And uh, she's definitely a generalizer, which which is which is out of fashion. But it's first of all, the masses prefer that, I think. And second of all, um, it's, well, it's, it's better. <laughs> I think it's better. <laughs> but third of all, what I was going to say is that it's how it used to be, I think. I think like, I mean, I'm not really an authority. I can't really make this claim. But the impression I've got from the reading I've done is that every major thinker of the past was trying to be this like totalizing figure who was like, here's the philosophy of everything and like, here's my explanation of like all of Western civilization and like, and they throw in everything like psychology, they throw in history, they throw in economics. I mean, I know, um, Pallia is a big Spengler guy, a girl, gal, <laughs> a Spengler, uh, Spengler is one of her biggest influences and he's like the most generalizing guy in the world. And I was reading, uh, some of Vola and I found out later that he was like, majorly majorly inspired by spangler himself but um you read these guys from the beginning of the 20th century and like you know avola sets out in um <laughs> it's funny because he sets out in uh, the revolt against the modern world to like give you the entire history of like the evolution of religion in the western world and that's only the first half of the book it's only like the first like whatever 150 pages or whatever it is and he does a really good job of it you know, um, so, but, okay, so my initial point to, to totally, like, abruptly shift my point here is that the reason I brought Pallia up to begin with 
is because she was talking in one of her books about how uh, the use of the phone at, at a mass scale changes society. And she was saying that, and this was another, this was another watershed uh, paradigm shifting moment for me when I, when I read this, that so now the media, these myths, right? The films are the myths that we all consume are an individual experience for each one of us. And we're not collectively going through this, uh, these emotions. We're not collectively absorbing these stories together anymore like we used to. We used to all sit together in a movie theater and there was people around us and we were all focused on the same thing. And that not only were we there with like 300 other people or however big the theater is, but we're in a complex that has this going on, you know, all the way down the hall in, in 10 theaters and, and that's happening all around the country. You know what I mean? And everyone's watching the same thing. And she also made a point that even more than movies is television. So even if you are in your home, you're sequestered in your home with just yourself or your family, um, there's only three networks. So the viewers of the, the, television shows were massively higher like the like i i mean i'm pulling this number out of my ass but i'm pretty sure she gives the anecdote that uh what's that show i love lucy had like 50 million viewers and the reason why is because it was literally the only thing people could watch whereas now everything is like tailor-made and it's like specific content to your tastes and it's 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 like even more insidious than simply having like this broad array of choices, but there's actually algorithms, right? Everybody knows about the, the evil cursed algorithm that like sends you more content and they sell it to you as like personalized content. And her point was that like the the socializing effect that these myths or that this like overarching media has on society is breaking down in the digital age because it's it's going away. Uh, we don't relate to our mythology like we're supposed to. You know what I mean? Because that's how you're supposed to relate to, relate to mythology. And if you think about it, it's very solipsistic. Um, it's very narcissistic because uh, film, like like any medium that is um, supposed to be taken in by the masses, has to be uh, ha- has to have a mass appeal. You know what I'm saying? It has to, in some way, relate to like a broad public because it was if it was very specific um, to a certain experience, it wouldn't get as big of a of an audience. You know what I mean? Whereas, yeah, no. And what you're describing, I've I've felt in my own life, like sort of when I was a younger man, certain movies, certain shows, I felt like I had to see if I wanted to participate in the broader culture, and it, now that's gone. Can I ask you how old you are? Yeah, I'm 36. Okay, good. We're pretty close in age then. So, so um, at what point did you start to feel that way? Like, like, are you saying like, for example, like the Marvel movies, like you, you don't want to go out and like participate in the broader culture of like the Marvel fandom? Is that what you mean? That sort of thing? Yeah, like I, I feel like so I I read the Game of Thrones books, and when that show came out, I think that I 
kind of didn't want to watch the show because in my mind at that time, I still thought George R. R. Martin would finish the books. So I was like, I won't watch the show. But it was such sort of like a phenomenon that I was like, all right, I got to watch this. And I think that's maybe that or True Detective. I don't remember which was first is the last thing I remember feeling like, oh, I'm really missing out if I don't. And, you know, my age could play a role here. But like since then, things sort of come and go. And my feeling is more like this isn't really generating like any cultural discourse <laughs> that I care about. Yeah. Uh, so I can bow out and nothing. I won't lose anything. I mean, dude, that's why I started a podcast, really. It, because like the, the whole culture is just dying <laughs> that way. You know what I mean? Like and, and there's definitely some nice things being produced and there's some lifelines out there like uh, that guy Eggers. I forgot his first name, Roger Eggers or David Eggers, whatever. Yeah, Robert, maybe. Robert, yeah. Uh, and like some some other guys I really like. But for the most part, like mass produced culture is just terrible. And, you know, so many people eat it up. But I'm happy to see that there's like this whole contingent of people like me and clearly like you who like don't want to have anything to do with it. And, you know, I go to work and I was like, I'm like such a curmudgeon and I'm like, I don't want to talk to these people. I don't want to see these people. I'm like forced to be around them. And then some days I'd be like, man, I I can't be such like a a fucking, I can't be such like a old Scrooge. I I, got to like (laughs) have, I got to like be social, you know? So I'll like, you know, see a couple coworkers sitting around. I mean, dude, this has happened to me thousands of times. Co-workers will be sitting around talking and be like, fuck it, I'll go talk to those guys. Like, they're nice. They're cool. And I'll just go stand there and they'll just be like going on and on and on about like some video game or some sports or some like Marvel's movie. And I'm like, ah, man. And I just like won't say anything and I'll just walk away. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I'll be like, I was social for the day. Like I stood next to people while they talked about a blockbuster movie for five minutes. <laughs> it's like the farthest I can get with socializing, which is why the internet is so... I mean, why why we have these like subcultures on the internet? Because apparently there's like millions of people who don't want to like deal with that. And like, you know, I don't want the internet to be this like engine of anti-socialism. I want it to be. I didn't mean socialism like like communism. I mean like anti. I don't want it to be this like generator of anti-social an anti-social culture. I want it to be a generator of like new culture. So it's been like really great to see guys like obviously Bronze Age Pervert is the best example uh, using it to like generate a new culture. So I met so many cool smart people like in our little corner of the internet who like kind of have the same critique or sort same read on pop culture that I do that that's why I started the podcast I'm like all right good let's like let's get these people talking to each other and let's um let's try to bring in other people who maybe you know are like me who take to the internet and like type in their favorite whatever movie or show into into iTunes because they don't have anybody to talk about it because I mean okay you mentioned True Detective True Detective season one is amazing it's like seems to be pretty much generally agreed upon among our friends to be like the best show ever, right? But think about this. Uh, online, if you bring that show up to like people you, you, you socialize with online, everyone knows it. Everyone can talk about it. But go, go to the water cooler 
and bring up True Detective season one, like you're going to get nothing but blank stares. Like, I don't think one person, maybe one person I know in real life even knows what that show is, let alone has like seen it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I think one thing that stuck out to me in what you said is like, I think also as a younger man, you know, when I'm looking at movie reviews, I, I think I've been humbled by the internet in a very good way. Cause it's like when there was a more homogenous culture, you know, I'd read like a movie review in uh, like the New York times or the wall street journal and be like, this guy's a fucking idiot. Like I see all these, uh, deep things that he's not talking about. And this is like a surface level read, but it's like, then you get on Twitter and not only are there people with smarter, more literate reads than me, but like some of them are like autistic teenagers or like an unemployed guy. So there's like very high level uh, critical analysis just coming from like, so, so it was sort of like a uh, revelation to me to be like, oh, it's not that there's, no one's smart out there. Like there's all these smart people. They're just like, not, uh, they're all sort of similarly marginal, but like there's tons of them. Yeah. It's I'm in awe every single day, you know, like the people that we, we surround ourselves with. Like, I can't believe the level that these people are on. And I'm like constantly scrambling. I'm like, I got to read another book. I got to fill out my worldview. I got, I got to learn about this other thing. Like, because these people are just like, I mean, I remember when, when I found out that I'm not like the only one who talks about sexual persona, but hasn't finished it. I like, it's like this big sigh of relief. I'm like, okay, fine. Fuck. Like, I don't have to go back and finish that 700 page book. Like I'm not the only one. Like, I mean, I read a lot of it and I read the first, like, I think the first four chapters are like some of the best I've ever read in my life. Um, several times. Yeah, there's definitely, this is definitely an under discussed, like there's lots of bad things about Twitter, but I've definitely had the experience of being like, oh, I have to like reread Heart of Darkness because otherwise I'm not going to understand this Hakan joke. Yeah, man. I really want to understand. Yeah. Uh, This this um, sphere is like I I mean, I'm I'm actually trying to like break out, but like not break out, like get away, but like like broaden my appeal. Um, cause like, I'm still pretty, I'm still a pretty small account and I'm like my Substack uh, subscriptions. Like I don't have that many, but I think the best thing to do in my opinion is to like, I don't know, this sounds, sounds so fucking corny, but like, well, I'll, okay. I'll give you, I'll give you an anecdote to make my point is that one of the guys that I, I plan to have on my show a lot more uh, goes by the name. Well, he calls he goes by the name of Vitruvian, uh, but I call him Av because when I met him, he was the aspiring Vitruvian, and now I guess he ascended to be the Vitruvian. No, I'm just kidding. But um, so when I refer to Av, I'm talking about the guy that I did the Event Horizon and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode with, and he's on Twitter. And I've been talking to him like a lot. Like we're like we became like in real life friends, and you know we have each other's phone number and stuff like that. And he sort of made me see something that I don't think I would have seen before, which is that to 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 talk about pop culture uh, actually 
is more subversive than talking about politics. If you're a small person, you know, if you're a big, big guy like BAP, like talking about, because, you know, Caribbean Rhythms is like really deep, deep, deep political. I mean, that guy's like a fucking polymath like I've never seen. Um, but for, for somebody like me to try to like do the politics on that level, it's like I I feel like I'd be spitting into the void. But like, you know, to do a podcast episode on iTunes about a popular movie that everybody's seen and put a spin on the interpretation that no one's ever heard before, I think is like, I, I mean, I mean, dude, it just, it accomplishes so much stuff, you know, it accomplishes yeah, so much I would, stuff. I would maybe even go further and say that like the only way to be politically legible in 2022 is to talk about culture and pop culture because like political discourse is so poisoned that like anything you would say is actually just like, it's, uh, it's like functionally illiterate or something. It's like people, people's perspectives are so deranged that they're like incapable of taking political speech in yeah, man. except except in a certain confrontational way. And when you talk about pop culture, if people are interested in the piece of pop culture, they'll sort of like listen to you talk about it in a more uh, elaborated and specific way. And maybe somewhere along the line, they'll like get the feeling that they don't share your politics and duck yeah. out. But yeah. you have like a lot more runway uh, to, like this is a strategy I definitely use with people um, who like don't agree with me politically. Like I feel like we can we can talk about art and movies, and I can make like pretty I can sort of make points that are pretty in keeping with my politics, but like they don't find them objectionable in that context. I, I couldn't have said it better myself, man. That's that's absolutely correct. Um, I also think. I also think like, well, uh, just to reiterate my point, like if, for example, me and my friend Av read Evola together, we've read a bunch of books together. Now, if you put a podcast episode out called Julia Zavola or Revolt Against the Modern World, you're going to get people who've heard of that guy or, who, or who've heard of that book or someone else makes reference to it and they want to know more. So they type that in. But um, we have an episode coming out, and don't laugh at me, <laughs> but we have an episode coming out about the game Elden Ring, and we're, which is like one of the most high, you know, popular games ever. It's like the most popular game from from that company that makes it, and uh, it's, I think, the best-selling game of the year and all that. And we are, like, analyzing the story via Evola's revolt against the modern world and his grail myth books as well as campbell's grail myth and it's like i think what a great way to introduce people to evola but by 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 getting people who are into this video game to listen to a podcast about i mean i'm giving the fucking game away i don't even know if i should be doing that um but we're working on it behind the scenes and like i'm looking forward to putting out like a really good episode and his whole his whole like persona is going into video games because i was talking to him one day and i'm like dude like the whole gamergate thing i'm like is it i'm like every time 
I don't I don't even know how what I should say on your show exactly. Uh, every time I type in the name of a game, I want to read about the journalist. Let's just say is not someone that uh, <laughs> I would want to talk to about video games. I don't know how else to say it more diplomatically <laughs> than that. The journalist never. Oh, it's a post Gamergate journalist. I guess that if you know what I'm talking about, then that says it all. It's always yeah, a post Gamergate yeah. journalist, and um, you know, to 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 take to 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 see what has happened. Um, I'm getting I'm gonna I'm getting on my fucking televangelist soapbox for a second here, but I'm serious, dude. I mean, I really mean this. Like to see what has happened to the sacred uh the sacred um vessels of adolescent male culture like comic books and video games and like big blockbuster movies and to see what has been done to them it like feels like a crime it feels like a real like a crime um because uh comic books and and you know Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and heavy metal music and uh all this like testosterone driven uh lowest common denominator pop pulp culture like there is no place for discussions of like representation and toxic masculinity and uh problematic uh whatever you know the word problematic like no nothing geared towards a 12 year old boy will ever be problematic like it's it's insane it's fucking madness what they're doing to 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 the the media that like young developing boys are supposed to 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 consume because these things are really really important to the development of a of a of a boy and of a culture and to like try to suppress and repress and subdue like the the budding testosterone that makes them want to go out and do things like play and, and, and take advantage of life and like live life to the fullest to, 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 to try to subvert that, um, for, for, for girls who like don't actually care. Like they don't really care. You know, they just don't want to be like shut out. I mean, am I being too, I mean, is this like, okay, I don't know what's like, no, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's like a, a pincer movement because the, the girls who, originally were in attracted to games actually liked the same things that those boys liked and yeah. that's why they were there but and that's what really pisses me off in defense of them they have to sort of sterilize it for people who were never interested in it in the first place you're so right on man and that's why i get so pissed off because if you meet a real like the stereotype of the gir the girl with blue hair and tattoos and a lip ring who plays video games and watches anime, those girls are fucking cool. They just hang out. Like they love the whole thing. They're like so happy to be like a part of it. And then uh, you get these like journalists, right? Who don't know anything about it, who don't even really play video games. They just like see that millions and millions and millions of people are interested in this. They like, they like intercede and like try to like take it away and turn it into this other thing. And it's like, you want to talk about kicking the fucking hornet's nest. You know what I mean? But, um, you know, I'm not, I didn't come here to talk about Gamergate. I just, 
I didn't really appreciate No, but I, I think to just put a finer point on it, it's like I get mad at adults and my contemporaries because, you know, I have, I have friends now who are adults and have kids and they might say something like, oh, it's, it's crazy that like our parents let us play Duke Nukem. Yes, exactly. And I'll be like, look, man, like I know it's easy to say that we would have been the same and we would have been fine without Duke Nukem, but I don't think we actually know that. It's like, if you, it's like, do you really think that didn't mean anything to your sense of humor? Like to have modeled for you, like a certain form of transgressive aggression. It's like, we, I, I sort of assume that the, the sum total of all that culture was that like it benefited our development. Oh yeah. It's, it's cheating a new generation to say like, I think their attitude is like, Oh, that stuff was dangerous, but somehow we survived. Like, luckily, new kids won't have to deal with like such toxic stuff. Yeah, and I think it's it's the exact opposite. Like, we're we're okay because we had like some boundary pushing, adventurous, uh, vital to use a buzzword. But like, I think that's all true. I think it's because I remember feeling sort of like it, they probably might seem stupid to other people, but you know, you're playing some game. And like the the protagonist you're playing as with the gun or whatever, it, it might even be like you could even make this appealing to like certain lefties and stuff. Where it's like the Duke Nukem guy. I don't know if he does this, but he might make a joke about like the JFK assassination yeah. or like yeah. corporations being greedy. And it's like I think that really can like set off in a young kid's mind like oh, are you supposed to be, like, cynical towards these incidents? Like, I'm not dismissive of the potential formative and developmental role of stuff like that at all. And so, yeah, I think it's... I, I think you can already see sort of, like, the wages of uh, what getting rid of all that stuff is is doing to young people. They don't seem like they're having a lot of fun. No, it's not It's not fair. And you're you're right. You're right. Yeah, I mean that's where it's at. I mean, I think that I think that's where it's at. I mean, I mean, my favorite episodes of Caribbean Rhythms are always the ones where he talks about movies and, and books and pop culture and stuff that you know I care about. But it's like, uh, you know, I I want to provide a place for people to hear people talking about pop culture without all the hangups. You know what I mean? Because even like, yeah, you know, like I. I, I and I uh, I how do I say this like I don't necessarily like uh, the the farthest I'll go I'll put it, I'll say it this way I'll say it this way like obviously my other episodes are like ostensibly political and straightforwardly political but like um, for example like the Elden Ring one that I'm talking about the farthest I'm gonna go is just reference Evola you know I'm not gonna say like anti democracy and and uh, bring back, you know, the aristocracy uh, <laughs> and, and Aryan, you know, the Aryan religion, blah, 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 because he's really into that whole thing. And like once you start going down that path, it's like, you know, Aryan supremacy, like I, I'm not going to say any of that because I don't think it's important. But like so so the, the simple fact of like or Spengler's another one, he's a big, big influence on me. Um, or, or even another, and another thing, like I, I keep mentioning, Bap, like talking about Nietzsche in an honest way is like really subversive, actually. And I, I never saw that until um, 
until I found Bap, and and he's the one who made me realize that because I had already read Nietzsche, and like didn't exactly know what to do with it, and then I went back and reread him and reread him, and I realized I, I, I continue to be sort of shocked that Nietzsche remains in like the public intellectual canon, yeah, and that our betters haven't like seized it and burned it all. Because it's, it's like such, and some of it I don't even uh, think I agree with Nietzsche on, but it has like such potency uh, that it's just sort of like remarkable that it hangs around. Yeah, and it's it's crazy too because some people try to take him down and it never works. Like Steven Pinker, um, I think in The Better Angels of Our Nature, he you know goes on a tirade about Nietzsche and lots of other people have too. Um, I listened to this really, really good BBC show the name of which is escaping me now, but it's really easy to find. It's like a Channel 4 BBC uh, thing. And they have like, you know, prominent English intellectuals on there. And they wouldn't talk about Nietzsche. They shit all over him. And they make, they either make a joke of it or they say he's a fascist or whatever. But um, so and it ne- never works. It never he's his name will probably never come out of like the, the mainstream, di- the mouths of the mainstream discourse. So to have read him and understand him um take him at his word let's put it that way to take Nietzsche at his word like just to take Nietzsche at his word and have a conversation with people about him is an incredibly subversive thing to do because people lie about him all the time they lie about what he means I mean Walter Kaufman Walter Kaufman's Nietzsche translations are full of lies about what the text that you're reading says so you know They'll say uh, when he says something right wing, they'll say, oh, he doesn't really mean it like that. It's not really right wing. Or he'll say something like rather tame about either women or, or about, um, you know, other things. Um, people make a really big deal about it. And you say, well, actually, you know, that's that's like six paragraphs in an entire book. Like, why are you making such a big deal about this? This is not central to Nietzsche's thought. Like you're you're totally like distracting from it. So. Doing little things like that, I find more important. Plus, it's just fun, dude. It's just more fun. It's just fun. Like, yeah, the uh, way the way Nietzsche was couched to me when I first read him, I think in college, was like, oh, like he's sort of a reactionary and like thinks his time is uh, decadent and weak. But like, this has no applications today because like it was such a different time. Exactly when, right. When of course you read it and you're like, oh yeah, we've just become like even more the last man. Yeah, um, it's way worse with television now. <laughs> yeah, but I think I this is a little bit of a like a digression or going back to something you said at the beginning. But I think um, thinking of David Foster Wallace, who you mentioned. I almost see him as like the Pied Piper of a a movement that's, it's not political per se. And I don't know if you could say it's right wing or reactionary, but I almost think it's a, it's a reaction to postmodernism where it's sort of like, okay, if if you guys are going to say that like the Bible doesn't have any real meaning, you know, we're just going to look at it, uh, as like a product of its time or whatever. And like all these great works have no meaning. Like not only are we going to insist that those canonical texts have great meaning, but we're actually going to try to demonstrate that there's great and deep and sort of eternal meaning, even in these 
uh, like throwaway art products like pop art, because sort of because uh, the way I would put it is almost like and th- this is a separate idea I wanted to run by you is that like I, I think in my little religious worldview, it's like if if God is ultimate reality and if there's some divinity in us, then like narrative is some divine language. And so even when people want um, to make a progressive story or a story that advances a specific political cause, we sort of just all know intrinsically that the elements of compelling narrative remain the same. And I think because these are sort of timeless and eternal, and I would even say like from God or in some sense divine, they are always going to retain elements uh, that at least in our contemporary context are reactionary because it's going to be sort of about like will uh, and like a hero overcoming and probably the hero will be in one some sense better than other people in the story, you know, at least in terms of capacity or potential to be realized. And like there will be non-relativistic morals. So like I, I sort of I guess to to bring this all around, like part of what I see you doing on your podcast with with Av and others is like by insisting that this sort of like divine language is is what I call it is encoded even in like lowbrow arts, you're making like a very reactionary argument about meaning, which is like, yeah, not only is there meaning in the universe, but like there's meaning in everything. And we can go nine layers deep on like a, a Jason movie or whatever. Yeah, man, though that's very interesting. I've never heard narrative referred to as divine language. Is that your own thing? I don't think it's it's sort of like a combination of that. Like, I think that that's just like a more religious way of, I think, sort of saying what Joseph Campbell was getting at. Like, I like I think there's lots of people who say that sort of narrative and myth are like eternal and universal. And I just think it's it's not that much of a step further to say, like, well, if you're a religious person, if you're a Christian, then that's like some knowledge imparted to us by God. And like the reason we keep using it over and over again, in spite of ourselves is because like it contains the truths we don't want to face or like our politics are trying to make us obfuscate or whatever. And so I do think like, even though, as we were saying, like, I don't like the Marvel movies and stuff. I, I do find that when I'm forced to engage with these movies, like inevitably I will go see them with my friends and we'll come out and I'll be like, here are the five uh, thematic right-wing elements I identify. I mean, that's good. And they'll be like, I don't want to hear it, but it's always there like in some form or another. I would encourage you to continue doing that. That that's, that's should be done. You know, it also like the other thing though, is that, and, you know, I say this, like, people people listening to my podcast, they'll see that I'm, if you go look at my podcast, like, I have all these, like, straightforwardly political episodes, you know. Um, but but I'm I'm trying to, like, I'm, I really appreciate the feedback you gave me because I am trying to more conscientiously, like, talk about pop culture because I think it's a good move. You know, I don't know. We'll see where it goes. Um, th- those are not my most popular episodes, but... Um, But I also think in your straightforwardly political episodes, you still are mainly bringing in like genealogies of thought. Like it's, it's less about like 
what did different personalities say on Twitter? And it's more sort of like which thinkers sort of predicted this moment and like what can that tell us about what might happen next, which I think is like a more uh, thoughtful and interesting way to, to go about it. Oh, good. Okay. That's great to hear. At least one person. I've accomplished what I set out to do for at least one person. So it's little things like that, man, that keep me going though, seriously, because sometimes I'm like, because it, you know, it's a, I mean, it's a lot of effort. I don't know if it's easy for you, but for me, this feels like a mighty struggle sometimes. So it's, the feedback is really appreciated. Um, but I want to say though, like, um, talking about your favorite movies, even if you have to do supplemental reading of like three extra books on top of which you've already read, like just to make an episode about it, it's just more relaxing and fun. Like, it's like, you know, it's just more fun to talk about like, you know, Freddie and Jason. Like, I think those are bad movies, but they're like fun to talk about. And they were, they were pretty fun to watch. Um, you know, Freddie is like so fucking corny, but uh, it was a good time. And to talk about it and to like get people talking about it, um, it's like this nice like reprieve from the doom and gloom. Because I think this needs to be said, and I think this needs to be said more often. I have a great life, and I enjoy my life, you know? And I th get the impression that the majority of the people I talk to feel the same exact way. Um, but things are so bad, and, you know, it's like things are things are getting so bad in reality that you you can't ignore it. But I personally think that it's typically... Uh, a leftist thing to do to like constantly decry like how bad society is it's like their thing is to constantly decry like so-and-so is being oppressed and so-and-so is being marginalized and so-and-so is being uh, you know ostracized and they can't they can't enjoy the fruits of you know white privilege like you can like i feel like that's their thing and the only reason why i feel like the right even needs to sort of be the placard wearing uh, the, the end is nigh crazy person on the street is because the left is just pushing it so far because things got really, really, really good in America and they just kept agitating. They just kept agitating for like, you know, so like for, for people on the right to be doom and gloom, it's like, it, it's so difficult for me because one minute I want to say like, it's over. We're already in full communism. Like right now, like they won like 50 <laughs> years ago, but the other part of me wants to be like, no man, things aren't that bad. Like don't get so hung up about it. Um, and I just feel like the internet gives guys like me who are like nobody really. Well, a, I mean, it does the obvious thing, which it like puts guys like me and you in contact who would never would have otherwise found each other. Um, and been able to like share ideas and stuff, but it also, um, it gives us the ability to like put, and I, you know, this not to be so fucking tangential, but I can't help myself. Like what you said about like God's narrative or what did, what did you say? Like the divine manifesting itself through the narrative, you know? Yeah. That like narrative is a divine language. Yeah. Like if, if that's true, um, you know, for someone like me or you to like put content out that like brings this out and, and sort of um, embellishes it and, 
gets more people interested in it, we're doing something positive for everyone, you know, for other people and for ourselves. Like where, where if, 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 if you, um, you know, when you were talking about like uh sacred narrative or whatever, it made me think of Dostoevsky because he, and I'm, I'm just assuming you've read him. Yeah. I think crime and punishment might be my favorite book. Yeah. I mean, I could just tell like you're somebody who, who likes that crime and punishment. I mean, it's, but even more so with the brother Karamazov, uh, because Crime and Punishment is good, but it has a little bit of a negative. At the end, it's like, I don't know, it's like very religious, but it's also like, at the end, it's like pretty pessimistic. I don't know. Maybe I'll ask you, okay, I'll ask you a follow-up question about the end of Crime and Punishment, uh, but I'll just make my point is that, you know, he's generally considered like the greatest novel writer like ever, and everyone pays fealty to him. But when you read him, he's using his position to deliver like a, a message of religion and a message of God. Like he is like, he is a very effective, you know, communicator of, of God's word. And, um, he is just so much more, what's the word? Well, I guess effective than I'm catching myself here. I don't want to be too controversial, but in my opinion, in my opinion, I mean, I've been to church a million times in my life. I went every single Sunday and, and Dostoevsky, reading Dostoevsky impacted me more than the cumulative decades of going to church ever did. Um, and then we could get into the reasons why, but I, I'm just bringing that up and saying that not to be as controversial as it sounded, but to sort of bolster your point that like, there is a higher purpose and a higher calling for all of this. No, I, I agree with that so much because I think, and I, I'm very like, I'm Catholic, but I, I have a lot of evangelical friends and I'm, I'm pro evangelical, but I do think growing up, I didn't like in America the way in which, the word I would use is God was sort of disnified. Like God is sort of sometimes presented to you as like, it's just fun. Like you have this, bo this buddy and he's love. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I think I was sort of like, I can't take something seriously uh, as like the most important reality in the universe when it's so sort of like casually, saccharine sweet and i think in dostoevsky i sort of encountered my first uh experience of like a grave religious experience like fear of god and sincere regret of one's own sin and what that might mean for one's eternal uh fate like no one i mean obviously like who would say that to a kid but it's like that was the first time I'd probably been presented with a character who was like, yeah, oh, like I now think uh, like God is real and I have gravely sinned and like this is horrifying. Like I hadn't encountered that and it was very profound to me. Yeah, Much man. more profound than just like a sunny story uh, that everything's good and happy or whatever. Yeah, it's the most intensely profound thing ever. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, I think I have to get going, um, but um, I would love to talk. You want to? Can we bring it home on Dostoevsky? Yeah. Well, actually, if if you don't 
mind. I actually wanted to say something just to to close out here on on BAP, who is uh, yeah. often oft referenced on your podcast. I think that one of the things I appreciate most about BAP actually is that he sort of shows uh, how there could be joy in a sort of synthesis of like being a doomer and having vitality. Cause I, I think in a way vitality is a synonym for like a specifically male type of joy, which is like the world may be falling to shit, but like, you don't have to care about that because like yep. you can be strong and go out and conquer and think it's funny that other people don't know what's going on. And like, I think that's a very good intervention, especially for young men who may be seeing themselves as, put upon or like hopeless it's like no you can have a sense of humor about this you can if not overcome it in a material sense you can overcome it in like a spiritual and psychic sense where like you're just i mean as you know as like a christian i don't know how much i can i i get a lot of value out of that but i think i there there's sort of like some background disagreements on like what it means to sort of like feel superior to other people. But I certainly think like in the context of America, if like a young man wants to think he's smarter or stronger or cleverer than the society around him and sort of garner like joy and humor from that, they should absolutely do that. Yeah. And I think that is, is wise to encourage that. Yeah. I mean, dude, I mean, what, what can I say? He has the best approach. He has the best, um, critique and he has the best advice ever and i don't really have many misgivings at all about anything he says uh he's really really important to me i mean i'm only doing any of this because of him because i found his uh podcast and his book and his twitter account and everything um and yeah you know i don't i can't say too much to your point without sounding like really <laughs> extreme but I, I, I mean, we're in a, in, a, in a national predicament where I think this egalitarianism stuff is really like uh, our nation is buckling underneath the weight of it. And um, <clears throat> actually remembering something I wanted to say in response to you, I knew I was forgetting something before where we were talking about uh, like consequences and like young men being violent and the regime being heavy handed with their repression and things like that. Um, we're entering a phase now where the egalitarianism might bring us so low as a nation that we'll never be able to get back up from it again. And uh, the way, and what that, and when that process happens though, it impoverishes and disenfranchises previously uh, enfranchised and, and economically, uh, uh, economically, um, stable people who, who are able to take care of them and support themselves. They end up getting, uh, impoverished by the regime. We saw this in 2008. We saw this in COVID. And, um, one of the ways that it can be dealt with in a peaceful way is like bread and circuses. And I worry that this like pop candy culture is just, you know, bread and circuses. Um, and there's only so much the people who are being impoverished and disenfranchised can do. I mean, there's, there's not that much that they can do. So 
it's far, like rejecting rejecting the um, prescribed cultural uh, production that we're supposed to uh, imbibe from from our overlords is is one step, and 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 embracing life and embracing humor is another step. But um, the the whole overman thing, the whole Nietzschean overman thing versus religion, uh, you know, I don't. That's a much longer conversation that maybe we can take up another time. I think you were kind of getting at that, where you said like you don't think other people should be brought low so that you can attain the heights. I mean, is that kind of was that in your mind when you said that? Yeah, I mean, I I guess like it's weird. I I think. In some ways, uh, I mean, maybe this comes from being Catholic. I don't know. But I think in some ways, like, I have maybe the opposite problem of, like, a lot of young men where I think, like, I can tend towards egotism and narcissism and feeling better than other people. And so for me, religion is a positive intervention in terms of encouraging me uh to, to feel less that way, to, to, to be make humble the story. Yeah. And to make the story more about God and not about me. But when I see, but that's a very different position than like imagining like a young man who has no confidence or no standing at all. Like I think in a very real way, like that person should be encouraged to sort of cultivate their power. So like, I, I don't think these things need to be in conflict necessarily. Yeah, no, not necessarily. But at the same time though, I guess like kind of to my point where, because you're talking, you're talking about um, society, but you're also talking about like the individual, right? And your perspective yeah. and the way you perceive yourself in relation to others. But I, I guess I was talking more like societally, like uh, the, the country starts to buckle under this egalitarianism. And therefore, if, if something's going to be done, um, other, like if it's going to be turned around in some way, uh, other people are going to have to be prevented from from I, I almost said rising up, but like from receiving the bounty of the nation. So like if 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 everybody's being if there's this like great leveling happening um, and it's racially motivated. So like, you know, certain people are brought lower on the status scale uh, while others are not necessarily brought higher, um, it's still egalitarianism because everybody's down. It's a race to the bottom, you know. So, in, in terms of policy, in order to stop or reverse that, you you probably have to put some sort of blocks in place to prevent other people from gaining access to like the resources that are being provided by like liberal policies and liberal federally funded policies, and um, you know that's. That's bootstrapping, which I which I agree with. People should have to bootstrap to like make it in life. Um, so if you you know Bap gets some pushback from like the mainstream because he's like anti-liberal, but uh, you know you can look at it as putting other people down so that you can attain the heights, or you can simply look at it as you stop taking away from the strong to give to the weak, like to prevent, to, to ceasing taking from the strong or from the rich to give it to the weak or to the poor is not active oppression. 
You know what I mean? And I'm not saying that you're saying that it is. Well, no, yeah, I think I, I think I agree because I think I have a much more Nietzschean and and BAP view of politics than in the individual realm of my life. Like I sort of think, unfortunately, politics is sort of a zero sum game. At least it is when times are not abundant. Yeah, and I think that's that's different than like my personal conduct. Uh, with other people. But yeah, like if the borders open forever, then just every American will be poor. Like that's a, it's insane to me that people like don't get this. (laughs) Like it's fucking insane to me that this is even an issue. Right. Like there's no, and I think Bab has talked about this, but like there's no concept of citizenship. Like if you say the most basic thing in the world to a modern American, like say the state's obligations to a citizen, uh, ethically and materially are much higher than to a non-citizen people will just like blink at you but that's like the foundation of the polis (laughs) like that's that's all that's like what politics is is like the distinction between citizen and non-citizen but yeah well they think everybody should be a citizen and because you know because you know a lot of this is like a lot of liberal policies are allowed to go on not all of them but like the economic ones the um immigration or not, not immigration, but like welfare, are allowed to go on because they just print money and they just like infuse cheap money and they manipulate credit rates to just do whatever it is that they want to do. And apparently the liberals' position on that is like, well, great. Yeah, why do, Why wouldn't you want them to do that? You know what I mean? Like apparently they, they're just fine with it. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting even with the recent inflation we've had, which I think is like the first – real-time feedback of that kind of monetary policy like people got mad at inflation but it's not as if the country like started to philosophically reevaluate like the idea of creating money that way they were just like oh you went a little too hard on the money printer this time yeah like i don't even know if they thought that like they i mean Yeah, I'm I'm sensitive uh that I know you you have to go. This has been great. I really uh appreciate all your time and either either here or on your show we should we should do it again to follow up on uh some of the things we we didn't get uh thoroughly through. Yeah, man. I'm I'm so tangential that like every conversation I have has to be like part 1 of a long series because we never get to everything. I really we were we were uh, on a pretty good roll about literature and I actually um you know, was really into Dostoevsky for a while, and I haven't really looked at him or thought about him much in a while. But uh, I really want to talk about him and his work more. Um, you said you said Crime and Punishment was your favorite book. Yeah, but I also I I read uh, Brothers Karamazov when I was probably too young to get it, so I need to reread that. So maybe I should. I mean, it's a it's a big endeavor, but maybe I should read that again, and then we can uh, pod about it. Well, that's interesting because all that stuff you were saying about like profundity and religion and stuff, it's like it's like you were describing that book. How old were you when you read it? I think I was a senior in high school. Oh, so like yeah. I, I got a lot out of it, but I think I probably missed a ton too. Oh, that reminds me what I wanted to say about that book. Um but yeah, I there's no way I could have read that book in high school. I mean, I don't I don't think I I probably wouldn't have finished it back then. It probably wouldn't have kept my interest because it was it's so heady and it's so uh 
I mean, a lot happens, but but it's also there's long passages where nothing happens, or long passages where there's just people talking and and everything. But um, you know what's interesting about that book is that I was uh, raised Catholic and pretty. No, I wouldn't say I was religious, but I like believed in God. I was like vaguely religious, you know. And I I um, I spent a lot of time reading about like Buddhism and a little bit less less so but other religions Taoism and hinduism and stuff but like for the most part in my 20s that stuff kind of just like bolstered my like christian belief in god you know Mm -hmm. because you can read that stuff and have it like enhance if you don't look at it with an oppositional eye it enhances your like appreciation of god but then i got like mind poisoned i guess by by the new atheists because i'm of the age that uh, i was around when they were around and the the weird thing is is like i didn't even totally buy into those guys like i never liked sam harris at all um i never really liked christopher hitchens but um nevertheless like i I looked into a lot of it and i looked into a lot of the the philosophers of science who talked about that stuff and they they persuaded me for a while, and I spent like a while as like a an, an atheist, and I guess a nihilist, even though I didn't see myself as a nihilist. But anyway, the point I'm making here is I so I went like maybe ten years of like actively disbelieving in God and actively being a, a nihilist, uh, uh, an atheist, excuse me. And I was like uh, chatting with somebody online about books, and I was telling her like, oh, I'm gonna read. The Brothers Karamazov. She's like, oh, that's you know, that's the best book of all time, and that book cured me of my atheism. And I remember, like, ha ha ha, like <laughs> cured you of your atheism. Like that's totally ridiculous. Like nothing will ever cure me of my atheism because God doesn't exist. Like, <laughs> and then I read that book, and I was like, oh my fucking god! Like now I have to believe in God again. Like you can't read that book and not believe in God. You know what I mean? Like. They cured me of my atheism. Like, that's exactly what happened to me when I read that book. Like, you just, his argument, it's, it just sounds ridiculous to say because I don't think belief in God really is like a rational thing, which is a point that Dostoevsky made me realize. Um, But nevertheless, like, his argument is kind of like, uh, you have to believe in God. Like, you just have to. And if you don't, like, you're going to be buried under the weight of existence. And he's totally right. And I don't know, man. It's hard for me to say if that book made that time in my life go the way it went or if my time in that that time in my life was going a certain way and then that book like snapped me out of it. Like I'm not really sure because it's so tied up in like everything that I was that was going on with me um, that it almost felt like divinely inspired that I read it when I read it. Like at the age I read it, you know what I mean? Like I, like yeah. like the fact that I read it at an age that it was able to have that much of an impact on me feels significant to me. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That's I mean. This is all fascinating. This is just making me definitely want to do uh, a Dostoevsky episode at some point. Yeah. So. yeah, you'll come on my show and that'll be what we talk about. I don't really okay. I don't really want to go, but my time is definitely up and like I have to go. But this has been awesome and I, I appreciate your questions. Um because it it's the first time I've I've like really 
thought about what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Like if somebody, if somebody like gives you an observation about your project and like asks you questions about it, like I don't sit around thinking about my project in these terms, but the fact that you did that, like, I feel like I have a little bit more of like a, a vision now, you know what I mean? So I really appreciate that. Well, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I, 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 I think this will be be obvious just from my comments, but I, I really get a lot out of it um, of all your episodes, but especially the the cultural ones. So yeah, keep up keep up the good work, and thanks again so much for uh, coming on. Awesome, dude. Thank you. All right, take care. Bye bye.